Future Self Podcast, episode 13. I'd rather fail on my own terms than be complacent for the rest of my life. But at the end of the day, you have to have that inner fortitude and that inner desire to keep moving forward because no one's going to tell you what to do. If you don't do it yourself, it's never going to get done. This is the Future Self Podcast, your place for financial and estate planning tips and so much more to make your future self your biggest fan. Here's your host, Robert Ingalls. Hello, Future Self listeners, and welcome to lucky episode number 13 of the Future Self Podcast, where every episode is intended to provide you with actionable advice that you can implement in your life today to get you from where you are to where you want to be. And with that goal in mind, I will be compiling knowledge, insight, and inspiration from some of the most accomplished minds and serving it up to you every Friday. And Does today's guest ever fit that bill? Long before she was a board-certified workers' compensation specialist and one of the most acclaimed attorneys in the state, today's guest was captain of her rugby team at William & Mary, a contributor to the Law Review at Wake Forest, and one of Charlotte Business Journal's 40 Under 40. She is an accomplished lecturer presenting nationally on topics ranging from the Affordable Care Act, workers' compensation, and Social Security disability. She has also also authored and co-authored numerous publications, including articles, legal publications, and most recently, the Amazon bestseller, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, an inspiring account of successful women in business. Now, today's guest has been embracing the hustle and making the difficult decisions every day to get where she is. But all of these accolades barely scratch the surface of the woman I know. When she is not busy pouring her soul into fighting for her clients, she's actively contributing to the local community and mentoring young college grads and law students. It is my great pleasure to introduce a woman that has been an invaluable mentor to me and friend as well for many years, Anne-Marie Pantazis. Welcome to the show, Anne-Marie. Thank you, Rob. What a wonderful introduction. I feel so humbled and, <laughs> and thankful for such a great um, great introduction. Thank hey, you. you. I'm, great, you, I'm grateful to be here. You wrote the script. I just got to recite it. So, All right. So we heard some of the highlights. Tell us what you're up to right now. So right now, today, um, I am podcasting from my law firm. <laughs> just... Um, trying to practice some law, trying to run my business, trying to build a building, trying to get through the day um, and yeah. still have time for a personal life. Yeah, I saw the lot next door. It looks good. Um, when's uh, construction start? So we just got our building permit. Um, hopefully we will start construction in the next week or two. We had a little bit of problems dealing with the city and some tree ordinances. I think and, that's the way it usually goes. Well, and what I've realized is that any well-played plan has bumps in the road and you just have to be flexible in dealing with them. And in my particular building project, which has nothing to do with my law practice, um, but has everything to do with my retirement plan, <laughs> is that you have to sort of plan for the unexpected. And in my case, in trying to build a new law firm, the unexpected was the city of Charlotte loves its oak trees. And I was not planning on having to battle them all summer in uh, getting a uh, tree ordinance or a tree permit. So, um, But now that's all taken care of. We're good to go. Right on. And we're, we're going to build a new law firm. It's going to be a lot of fun. Great stuff. All right. So we just heard a short version of your accomplishments. And I think that sometimes when people hear all of uh, those things, that list of accomplishments, I think they think, well, of course she's successful. She's the kind of person that's probably always been successful. What do you say to that? Well, I would say that I came from very humble beginnings. And I would like to think that I'm still a very humble person who 
has not forgotten those beginnings. Anybody can accomplish, in my estimation, anything they set their mind to if they have support. And when I'm talking about support, I mean family support, friends support, community support, but really internal support. You really have to believe in yourself. You really have to believe when no one else thinks you can do something or when no one else thinks that um, your plan is going to work out, that you have that internal vision and you stay true to it. But you also need to take into account the advice of your friends and family because they are looking out for you and they do want you to succeed. But sometimes I think that our own worst enemies are ourselves and our own caution. So growing up, I came, I grew up in a very conservative um, family environment. Um, I was lucky enough to have a mom and a dad who've still been together for 40 plus years. And I do understand that that is a luxury in this day and age. Um, but that was about it. We had um, a stable family background. Um, neither one of my parents went to college. I was the first one to do that. And, you know, the only thing that put me ahead of what I would say my peers were, were the support of my family. Um, growing up, education was stressed. And for me, I tended to be a bookworm. So it was kind of fun for me to learn and to, um, to study and to get good grades. And it really got me out of the lawn work and the yard work that I didn't want to do. I, I should have done the same thing. I wasn't quite as good on that. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, my parents stressed, stressed education. Um, so I ended up getting into a pretty good college and getting a pretty good degree and going to a pretty good law school. So all of that helped. But at the end of the day, you have to have that inner fortitude and that inner desire to keep moving forward because no one's going to tell you what to do. If you don't do it yourself, it's never going to get done. Was there any one moment that you can kind of look back to where it all kind of clicked and you said, I, I really I, I know what I want and I want to get after it? I've had several moments in my life where things have I call them my moments of clarity, where things have come into focus in an almost eerie fashion. The first moment of clarity I had was when I was about 17 years old. My mom worked uh, as a paralegal in a law firm, and she got me a job after school washing dishes, filing papers, doing whatever needed to be done uh, to help that law firm move forward. It was a very small firm. It was uh, one person or one lawyer firm, solo practice in a small town where I grew up. and. My first mentor, and we'll talk about mentoring uh, during this session, was uh, the person who my mom worked for. His name was Buck Jacoby. Uh, he was, when the time I was working for him, when I was 17, he was probably about 45. And what I really admired about his lifestyle was that he was in utter and complete control of his day. He to some extent controlled his work day. I mean, he, he went to court, so he had court calendars to work around, but he controlled the clients that he took, he controlled the meetings that he went to, he controlled the organizations that he belonged to. And at the end of the day, his life was important to him. So at four o'clock every day, he was big into cycling, he would leave work, he would ride his bike. Um, towards the latter part of his um, career, he started getting into planes, he owned a small plane, became a pilot, got his pilot's license. So he always took time for himself and his hobbies and his own inner growth outside of the law or his chosen profession. So when I was growing up and I saw this really accomplished person who still maintained time for other interests, I said, I want to work in a job that allows me that flexibility to pursue my goals um, out, both within and without, both within my profession and outside of my profession. So 
Um, so the moment of clarity I had when I was 17 was I want to be a lawyer. But not only do I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a lawyer who owns their own practice because I want to have complete control over where my life is going to take me. So that was the first epiphany I had when I was 17. The second epiphany I had was when I was a first-year lawyer. And I always... I kind of got away from, I want to be a lawyer in a small town so I can control my day to, I have a lot of student loan debt and I have to take the highest paying job at the biggest law firm <laughs> uh, right out of law school so I can start paying these student loan payments. So sure. out of law school, I got hired at what I would call an insurance defense firm. Uh, and they don't represent the people. They represent uh, corporate interest, insurance interest. So you a much smaller segment of the people. Much smaller segment <laughs> of the people. And in fact, they're actually working, in my estimation, against the people. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but it's it was my job at the time to find a way to minimize risk on the claim. And if that meant, you know, saying that the other side wasn't being truthful or trying to find a way to impugn their credibility or do whatever I needed to do to keep the case costs low or the risk on the case low, that was my job. So my second epiphany was I woke up one day and I said, I'm not really practicing law right now. I'm a glorified insurance adjuster. And my job at the end of the day isn't to help society, isn't to help this person across the table from me. It's to save an insurance company money. And that is not why I went to law school. I had to remember when I was 17 years old, when I was looking across the desk at my mentor and he was helping people, he was defending folks in court. He was representing moms who were trying to get child support. He was, you know, representing injured people in their claims. He was, he was what I call a street lawyer. And I got away from being a street lawyer. But I had financial obligations. I wasn't married. I'm still not married. Uh, didn't come from any f sort of family money. So I had to eat. <laughs> so yeah. I thought the best way to do that was go to the highest paying law firm at the time, uh, which at the time actually was the best decision I, I could have made because they gave me the training that I needed to move on in my career. Kind of jump the fence. Yeah. And that's what I've learned that every experience from a professional standpoint is an experience that you should grow upon. It's one brick in the house that you're building. And you can't expect to have the first job, whether it be at a college or law school or grad school, to be the job that you're going to have for the rest of your life. But if you look at every job you have as an opportunity to build your house, to build your empire, so to speak, then you can't fail even if that job is only for a year or two. And to take away from every experience something that you can use to move forward. I call it failing forward. So even if you don't feel that that experience was what led to your success you know, 10 years down the road, it was a starting point. And everybody needs to have a starting point and recognize the value of the starting point. But the third epiphany I have is knowing when to say when. So that job, although it um, was not my dream job, it did give me the skill sets that I needed to move forward in my career. But at a probably about the three-year mark of being in that job, I realized that, um, again, it was my job to save an insurance company money. And I wasn't really excited. I got the proverbial Sunday dreads. And I think we're all familiar with what the Sunday dreads are. It's just that terrible feeling on Sunday night where you're dreading going to work in the morning. You're yeah, dreading I used to get up. it first thing when I, I'd open my eyes on Sunday morning and be like, damn. Yeah, it's, um, it's a challenge to get over. And when I was thinking about maybe making a move, maybe starting my own practice at that point, 
I had a case that I was involved in and I won the case. And at that time, the insurance companies were paying my firm on what's called a flat rate basis. So even though I put in a lot of time in winning this case, my fee was significantly cut because the flat rate didn't cover the amount of time it took to prepare and to try this case. So I went, when I went to the insurance company, I said, great news, I won the case. Would you please pay the extra whatever three, four, five thousand dollar fee that it took to win this case where I just saved you forty thousand dollars because they were willing to offer forty thousand dollars to settle the case and I said no I want to try it. They said no. We appreciate your hard work, but that's our contract with your firm, so you're gonna have to write off that that uh, time and which meant I had to work extra hours to make up that time. Uh, so at the end of the day, I felt that my hard work wasn't being rewarded. I felt that I was being paid to do what I call C or average work, and I wanted to be an A student and an A lawyer. So I realized at that time I needed to make a change, and it was the third epiphany I had was when my sort of life's motto came to me. And my life's motto is, I'd rather fail on my own terms than be complacent for the rest of my life. And that's really guided me since that, since that day when I realized I wasn't being rewarded. The man was always going to tell me what kind of salary I was going to make, what kind of money um, or what kind of client I would have to um, take on uh, if I would have the power to hire and fire that client. So once I realized that complacency was not an option for me, I started looking at other options. Granted, I still had $100,000 in student <laughs> loan debt. So to take on a new venture with a lot of debt is extremely scary. So I kind of did something unusual. I went from that firm to what I, an even bigger firm that offered an even bigger carrot. And I thought, okay, maybe it was just this one firm that was not the right place for me. Give it one more shot. Let me give it one more shot. So I went to an even bigger firm with even more structure. And it was actually even more challenging there because at least at the first firm I was trying cases, I had some control over my day and my strategy. At the new firm, I was stuck in a windowless office. Well, I had one window. Window didn't open though. Doing um, things called 50 state surveys where you would take one topic and write a brief on how every state managed that topic. And it was that time when I realized I'd rather work at the Gap than be a <laughs> lawyer anymore that I knew I needed to make a change. Um, so it, um, now, as of today, it's been almost 12 years since yeah. you stepped out on your own, right? Yeah. The reason I stepped out on my own was because I was forced to. I got fired. Okay. And that's not something that a lot of people know or that I talk about a lot, but at this big firm that I went to, that second firm, I had a boss who didn't um, recognize the skill set that I could bring to the table, and we just weren't a good team. Yeah, I mean, um, not every job is a good match. Well, it was really hard for me because growing up being a good student, because I studied instead of doing the lawn work and you know, went to a good law school and, and tried some cases at my first job, you know, and as you mentioned in my in my intro, you know, I was a member of the law review. I was a published member of the law review. I wasn't just on the moot court team. I was a semifinalist on the national moot court team. I wasn't just a semifinalist on the on the national team. I was the chief justice of the moot court. So everything I've ever done, I've done it to its highest um I've taken it to its highest platform. So when I'm now faced with being in a large law firm and 
facing a situation where somebody doesn't think I'm good enough or doesn't think I'm smart enough or doesn't think I have the right skill set for them. And instead of saying you don't have the right skill set for us, they just say, we took a chance on hiring you from a second tier law firm, or we don't think you're good enough, or we don't think you're smart enough, because those are the things I heard when I was getting fired. You're not good enough for this firm. And I was ne- I had never been told that I wasn't good enough for anything. And that was a very hard thing to hear. So how do you go from taking all that um, harsh criticism to thinking, well, now I'm going to do it myself? You have to have a lot of inner fortitude. And it was at that time I told my boss who was criticizing me that I was not going to let her opinion of me affect my opinion of me. We talk about mindset on the podcast a lot. And that's a hard thing to do for a lot of people. You have to have an inner strength and self-confidence to say when the whole world thinks I cannot do something, I'm still going to do it. So it was at that time that I realized... I need to get back to what 17-year-old self wanted, which was to be a solo practitioner in a small town helping people. And so that's what I did. Along the way, I left that firm. I got fired, (laughs) so I left. Uh, I went into partnership for about two years with another attorney who had a small practice so I could learn the ropes. And then he and I uh, went our separate ways, and I started my own practice in 2005. So it's 2016 now. Yeah, 2005. So about 11 years on my own. Within two years, I was able to buy my own building. Within five years, buy the land next to my building. And now we're building the second building. So this is the progression. And and the reason I spent so much time talking about the first part of my story is because the first part of my story is a very typical story. It's I went to law school, or I went to grad school, or I went to college, and I have a lot of debt, and I'm in a job that people are criticizing me for, or I'm not feeling that I'm making a difference, and I'm getting complacent, and I don't know what to do, and then I go to another job thinking that will be better, but it's the same job just wrapped up in a different wrapper, and I'm still feeling the same way. And it's not until I got fired, until the universe told me you're not doing this anymore that I actually listened. Yeah, I I love that because I think a lot of people get mired down in the beginning part of your story and they never leave it. They never leave it. What I say when I give this talk to young attorneys, but it easily translates to anybody in their first or second job or looking to make a change, there's no time like the present. I, I, I equate it to jumping off a high dive. You're on the high dive and you're looking down and it looks so far and it looks so scary and everything everything in your self-preservation mode kicks in and says, don't jump, don't jump. It's scary. You don't know what's down there. You don't have the money. You don't have the time. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. But when you just take that proverbial leap of faith and you jump, what has happened whenever you've jumped off a high dive? You get down there like, oh my gosh, that was awesome. What a rush. Yeah, I'm going back up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and so that's what I equate it to. I was 30 years old when I started my law practice, and I remember people who were 15 to 20 years older than me saying, I wish I had done it when I was your age, because now I'm doing it now when everything is safe, when I have my business plan, when I have this paid off or this situation financially taken care of, but I'm 15 years behind schedule. You know, it takes a while to build a bu- build a business. So if you're not starting until you're in your 40s or in your 50s, and I'm not saying you can't start then, but if if you have time on your side, just like compound interest compounds, t- 
time compounds your ability to really um, create your life that you've wanted to create and that control that maybe will allow you to have um, the flexibility that I think a lot of people are looking for these days. Absolutely. I like that. Um, So I want to break down a little bit about kind of your day-to-day life. Um, Give the listeners an idea of what your habits are. What are your routines that you've kind of put through in your life that have helped you to be successful? Um, Well, I'm going to preface it with I don't have children. So (laughs) I think that really plays a big part into anybody's routine. So I will take all of this with a grain of salt because I recognize that children put an equation into um, your day-to-day that you know, you can plan for the best, but when you have a child or multiple children, things can go um, not as planned very quickly. But the things I always try to do, and I know it's easier said than done, is don't apologizing for getting sleep. Sleep is important. The most successful people sleep. Um, I think in this society, people pride themselves in saying, I can function on five hours of sleep right? as if it's something, something to be to, proud of. Right. Brag about, I brag about how busy I am, how much I work, how little I sleep. Exactly. Honestly, I work in my law firm at my business 35 hours a week. And I know that that sounds crazy. How do you only work 35 hours a week? I often say I have a nine to five and a five to nine. So my nine to five maybe 35 to 40 hours a week when I'm in the office or I'm doing things specifically related to my law practice. But my five to nine, what I call my networking is still working. Networking is working. Sure. And so what I would say my typical day to day is I get up around 630. I do some meditation. Um, Uh, I do exercise and or meditation. So either go for a walk, I'm reading the Bible right now. So that's my time to read the Bible, listen to my podcast, basically get my mind right for the day. I try to get into work by 8, 8.30. Again, not super early um, because I want to give my body the rest it needs and my mind the time it needs to get ready for a very hectic day. Um, During the day, you know, I, I work on my business during the day, I would say I practice law about 65% of the time and I run the business about 35% of the time. And some days those percentages are skewed. I always use my lunches to network. I feel like you need to have working lunches. I say always, maybe three out of five lunches I use for business purposes and maybe two to three times a week after work, I'm doing some sort of networking activity. So I average about five to seven or eight networking things each week. Uh, And I have to network. I have a small practice. It's referral-based. And so a lot of my business comes from my network of people. I'm not saying if you have a business or a practice that's not network-reliant that you have to do that. But I think in any situation, even if you're working at a large company, you have to market yourself. You have to stand out. A lot of people think, oh, I'm in this big company and it doesn't really matter because I'm gonna do what I do regardless of whether I have a big network or not. But if you make yourself indispensable, you will be the last one out the door when the layoffs come or when the when the downsizing comes. Thomas Friedman wrote a really good book, The World is Flat, and what he was talking about was how when all these jobs get outsourced to other countries, what differentiates yourself 
your indispensability to the company. And those are your soft skills, your people skills. What was that book? The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. It was written in the late 90s, early early 2000s. But I think a lot of the concepts are applicable. My big takeaway was always be aware that somebody else is coming behind you to take your job (laughs) and you need to find a way to differentiate yourself from the herd. There's always a younger lion coming. Exactly. And so the bigger network you have, the more customers you have, the more people who are who you can rely on, even if you do get downsized to say, okay, now I have this option over here because I know this person from that event or this person from this part of my life who maybe give me a lead. You just give yourself what I call a social safety net. Absolutely. And you know, when you, if you do lose your job, um, how many people get their jobs because friends recommended them? Absolutely. Absolutely. um, So yeah, there's a, I don't remember who said the quote, but it's your network is your net worth. Exactly. And that is absolutely true. There's another book that I read um, and it's linchpin. I think it's mm-hmm. Seth Godin that wrote that. And it is, uh, it's essentially the same thing. Be so good. They can't ignore you. Be the linchpin in Absolutely. the business. I call it being a thought leader, uh, a social leader. Anytime you can lead other people, even if it's leading them to dinner, even if it's organizing a social event, if you can be a leader of people, then you differentiate differentiate yourself and that leads to your indispensability the other thing i like to remind myself is that i'm not a lawyer who happens to own a business i'm a business person who happens to practice law i like that and about two years ago i realized that my job isn't just being a lawyer my job is to retire (laughs) (laughs) everything i do on a daily basis every investment decision i make every um, direction I tend, I want to go in my business, whether it be my law firm or my real estate holdings or whatever thing I'm doing, I have to say, is this getting me closer to retirement? So instead of just thinking that I am the owner of Pantasis law firm, I tend to think of myself as the CEO of what I call AMP Inc., and AMP Inc. is driven by the law firm. The law firm is the big engine, but the law firm funds diversification investment opportunities. And that's why I bought my building that I'm currently in. It's a small building. When people say, oh, you bought a building, I mean, it was a $250,000 building. You know, it wasn't a crazy uh, amount. But if you can own your space, that puts you one step ahead to the retirement game because if you add up all the rent that you pay over the course of your career i talk to my colleagues all the rent they've paid over the course of their careers there's no reason not to own a building and for me we kind of outgrew our building um so we took the upper or we i i feel like my team my two paralegals and i are a team sure so when i say we do something i empower them with um with a lot of authority in my practice and they are now invested in my practice. So they uh, are loyal to my practice. And that's just good leadership. Well, it's good leadership and it saves you money because if you don't have constant turnover, you're not losing money in training and, um, bad employees, bad employees. Exactly. So, um, the reason I bought the next building or the land to build the next building is because a 
lawyer friend in town gave me a great piece of advice and he said never pass up the opportunity to buy land adjacent to your office because you never know when you're going to need it or your house or your house never <laughs> pass up the let me repeat never pass up the opportunity to buy land adjacent to your stuff yeah because you don't know if you're going to need more space you don't know if you're going to have a bad neighbor and honestly when you have two parcels back to back if somebody wants to come and develop that track you have more bargaining power absolutely so i bought the land next to my current building and we are building a new office building i don't need this all of the space that we're building but i'm using it as a rental opportunity to rent to other attorneys um, and offer kind of a turnkey ability to come in and have all the technology receptionist infrastructure in place charge a flat fee and then make uh, make up the investment in that respect so i'm always trying to think of how do i use my law firm to push other investment opportunities the other thing i do is have a very modest personal residence because i can't make money on my personal residence i can't rent out space in my personal residence i guess you can now on vrb or airbnb but this is sort of taking it to the next level so once you get your business going if you can find ways to invest your money in commercial investments versus what I would call personal investments. I know that most people's house is their biggest investment. Sure. And I would challenge everyone to rethink that. You know, unless you can, unless you have a big family and need all that space, if you're two people, do you need 4,000 square feet? Why don't you live in 2,000 square feet and buy a 2,000 square foot commercial piece of property that you can then make money on? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the problems that we see a lot is people just kind of mortgage, like how much can I buy? Exactly. I'll take that. Versus how much should I buy and will this thing that I buy lead to my retirement? Right. Absolutely. So that kind of takes us into our next topic is goals. We heard your kind of the big one goal is to create a, uh, a solid nest egg for retirement. But let's break that down a little bit. You know, do you set small goals, yes. large goals? Do you write them down? I do not write them down. However, I constantly am thinking about them and tweaking them. I have a one-year goal, a three-year goal, a five-year goal, 10-year goal, 20-year goal. One-year goal just today is to build this building. That Actually, it's been the culmination of a five-year goal. In 2010, I bought the land. It's now 2016. So it's been a longer process that I had anticipated, but the, the five-year plan was to build this building. The more recent one-year plan is now that we have the building permit and the architectural design finished is to go ahead and finish it within the year. The three-year plan is to have it fully rented and a profit-driving enterprise. The 10-year plan is to have it paid off. And at 10 years, then it becomes a pure income stream. So the 10-year plan really is to start thinking about backing off and retiring at that point. You know, having the next 10 years be your setup and then well i'll tell you i call it the master plan <laughs> i refer to it all the time the master plan is to retire in 10 to 15 years and to use um, the next 10 years to continue to hit it hard continue to have the law firm fund all these other investments to have the rent the rents from the new building help pay that mortgage but have that mortgage paid off in 10 years from years um I'll be about 53 at that point. So from 53 to 63, live off the rents. I can stop practicing law because those buildings will be paid off. 63, the 401k should kick in. 
So those right are the, those are the things. So my my yearly goals are to pay my operating expenses, to pay myself a salary, and to max out my four hundred one k, and to pay my taxes. Uh, getting ahead of your taxes as a small business owner is always a very challenging thing. So if you can come up with a structure to figure out on a quarterly basis how to pay your taxes, cash flow is always an issue. So I always have access to several lines of credit. That doesn't mean that I'm in a lot of debt. Having access to credit is different than having bad credit. So a lot of people think, oh, I I can't go into debt. I can't um, use these credit cards. The reason I was able to go from being negative $100,000 in debt with law school loans and no money to start a law firm to five years later buying a building is because I funded my practice, believe it or not, with credit card cash advances. Um, I couldn't get a business loan because I didn't have a history of running a business. Sure. I was a, I was self-employed. No one's going to give a business loan to a self-employed person. But credit cards, because I had good credit, that didn't mean I didn't have debt, but I had good credit. Credit cards are a great way to self fund startups as long as you can get these introductory rates at 4% or lower. It's basically front-loading the 4% or 3% interest. And you have to keep track in a QuickBooks program or some sort of accounting program of when those loans come due because the way they make money in offering these types of um, deals is that you'll forget or you won't make your minimum payments and then the interest rate increases to 15 to 20 percent which is no good so i funded it uh, with credit cards always have access to credit even if you don't use it having that safety net allows you to have the cash flow fluctuations that any small business is going to going to experience right on so when we look at these uh, goals, not, not even one specifically, but what do you think has been your biggest challenge to achieving your goals? That's a really good question. Yeah, one of those thinkers. Yeah, patience. You have to have patience. A lot of people want to go from zero to everything within two to three years. Everything takes time to build. You know, right. not every dollar that you spend today is going to realize a gain tomorrow. Sometimes that dollar you spent today won't be realized until three years from now when that contact pays off or that piece of equipment that you invested in finally starts generating the, the efficiencies which is why you invest in that piece of equipment to begin with. So I would say you really have to have patience. That this is a this is the long game. This isn't the short game. This isn't oh, in three years from now, if I'm not making a million dollars, I'm out. Right. You know, Got to keep jumping from thing to thing. This is incremental change. I think the other biggest challenge is realizing, and and I know this talk has really just sort of melded into how to sort of run a small business. But one of the biggest challenges that a small business owner faces is that you have to wear many hats. You have to be a marketing expert, an accounting expert, a tax expert, a payroll expert, an HR expert. And that doesn't even include an expert in your particular field. So really educating yourself, what habits, going back to the habits that uh, I think successful people employ, I read all the time. I read the local newspaper, the business journal, the lawyers weekly, all the trade magazines that come out in my profession, which can be a lot because I'm a member of a lot of organizations and they all have quarterly trade magazines. I read social media to keep 
up with, you know, what my friends and colleagues are doing. And then I engage, meaning like if I see somebody just had a win at the Court of Appeals or I see somebody just had a birthday, I write them a note, happy birthday or great win. So constantly being engaged with your surroundings takes a lot of time. This takes a lot of time, but reading, being, um, having some time to yourself to meditate, being um, physically fit. It's very important to remember to exercise as much as you can. I know it's hard to do it every day, but at least three or four days a week, just to keep your mind right. Not just to keep your body right, but to keep your mind right. So um, I would say those, those are my habits. Sleep, meditation, physical exercise, reading, engaging, and being constantly um, a student of your business. And when I mean your business, I mean every aspect of your business, your marketing, your taxes, um, your healthcare system, you know, how all of these things that you hear on the news can impact your business on a, on a daily basis. I hope you are listening and paying attention listeners because you are getting nuggets of gold dropped all over you right now. So moving on to mentoring, that is uh, obviously the, kind of our, the way we early established our relationship. And I'd venture to guess that at this point in your career, you probably have more mentees than you can probably count. I call my baby birds. <laughs> um, I have a lot of them. So what made you decide to put such a focus on mentoring? You know, you're just giving your time, your most valuable asset. You're just giving it away, basically. That's true. I don't think there was ever a time that I sat down and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a mentor. I'm going to, I'm going to mentor other people. I think Kim Cattrall had a very, for those who don't know, she was Samantha from uh, Sex and the City. Uh, she got asked, how does it feel not to be a mother? You're 50 some years old and you're never a mother. And she had a great answer. She said, of course I'm a mother. I just didn't give birth biologically to a child, but I'm a mother to my nieces, to my nephews, to other young actors and actresses, to my friends, to my colleagues. And that's how I feel because I don't have children. Maybe I felt that sort of maternal urge to nurture in other ways. And that's when I really felt that what can I give back to a young person? I can give back um, exposure. And it goes back to when I was a kid. And when I was exposed at 16, 17 years old for the um, working in the law practice, you know, coming from an immigrant family, coming from a family that never went to college, somebody exposed me to a different lifestyle uh, and a different way of thinking. You know, I think when we come from a very conservative um, background where we're living paycheck to paycheck and, you know, there really isn't a lot of time or money in the budget to do other things, you tend to be very conservative with your money. You don't tend to spend it Um, without really thinking truly and hard about it. But when I was exposed to a different way of thinking, and I would, that leads me to the next book that I would highly recommend, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, by Robert uh, Kiyosaki. And we'll link all the books we're talking about in the, on the blog and in the show notes. You have to start thinking like a rich person instead of thinking like a poor person. And I don't use the word poor pejoratively, but meaning using money as a tool, not being afraid of money. I feel like sometimes growing up, I got the sense that we're always afraid of money. Money was the big bad wolf. Money was the always the thing in the room. The root of all evil. The root of all evil. But when I started working at the law firm and I was mentored, I wasn't 
formally mentored, I think there's mentoring by exposure, by just having someone bring you to these lunches. And the Buck Jacoby, the lawyer I work for, took me to the Rotary lunches. And at that time, I'd never seen a banquet meal. I didn't know what the rubber chicken dinner was now <laughs> that I'm very used to it. But for me, I was like, my goodness, people get together at lunch with white tablecloths and multiple utensils. And I don't know where any of these <laughs> dishes or glasses go, but I'm just going to sit here and try to you know, take his lead. You know, he spent money to make money. And once you make money, you have to reinvest that money. And so what I try to mentor young people who maybe don't have a family background that exposes them to how to use finances to your advantage. I try to instill those alternative ways of thinking that, hey, I didn't come from money, but I use money as a tool. When other people are going to lend you money cheap and then you can use that money to make other money, that's a good use of borrowing. I'm, a bad use of borrowing is to go buy an $800 pair of shoes. A good use of borrowing is to buy $800 worth of things that will help you grow your grow your business. And so instead of getting the mindset that every dollar I spend is a dollar spent, you have to think that every dollar I spend is an opportunity to make $2. And if someone will loan me that dollar and then I can pay back that dollar and keep the, keep the other one, then that's a good use of money. Nice. Now, when we talk about mentors, one of the chief complaints I hear is I don't know how to get a mentor. What advice do you give someone who's trying to put themselves out there? You got to go make your mentor. I have a mentor and I didn't say, will you be my mentor? I just made him become my mentor. Just keep showing up. (laughs) I kept showing up and showing up. I kept showing up. I identified the people in my professional community who I most admired and I showed up at the places where they were. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, because if you ask someone to be your mentor, it's like asking someone to be your girlfriend. You don't go up to a stranger and say, hey, will you be my girlfriend? No, you've got to court them. You've got to get to know them. You've got to massage the situation. And all of a sudden, you wake up one day and you're in a relationship. And that's exactly how mentoring works. You have to develop that relationship. You got to, and you know, I say this, you got to make sure that it's a good fit. Absolutely. Just because they're successful doesn't mean that you are going to be a good fit with them. They might have a very, you you know, different belief on, you know, how to get success that might jive with some of your fundamental beliefs. Um, so I always say you need to meet the person and get to know them and develop that relationship before you even consider. Absolutely. And there are different types of mentors for different types of situations. You can have a mentor within your business. I have a legal mentor. He also happens to be my financial mentor because he also owns a very successful small law firm. But I have a lot of mentors who I just ask legal questions to. Hey, how do you do this? How how do you solve this problem in this particular case? Whereas I have my financial mentor, how do you structure your 401k? Sure. You know, those are two different types of questions where you may need two different types of mentors. So don't limit yourself to one type of mentor or one person. Yeah. And and I think what you said about patience earlier uh, applies here as well. That's one of the things I see is people just get very impatient. They just want the relationship to develop. They want to have the keys to the kingdom, essentially, you know, on the first date. And it's really like anything else in your life, you've got to put the work in. Don't just go in with your hand out. That's exactly right. And what I would say too, and this is just a practical piece of advice, when you are fostering that mentor relationship, offer to pay. Now, I know a lot of young people feel like I don't have any money. You know, I can't afford to take someone out to lunch. 
I would always and will always pay for a younger person, even if they ask me out to lunch, but I find it respectful if they at least offer to pay. I say it's like being on the first date. You know, the girl's job is to offer, the guy's job is to decline. Sure. And it's the same thing with an older mentor-mentee relationship. I'm not being sexist or ageist. It's just that an older, more established professional is never on the first or second time going to let the younger person pay. And if they do, I don't think I'd want that person to be my mentor. <laughs> but I want to be respectful of their time and at least offer to sure to show that respect. And listeners, you can go to robertingles.com and you can find the blueprint for getting high value mentors. That was episode 12, so check that out. Now, having count, you know, countless mentees now, um, since I've been practicing for a while, I know that one of the challenges that they're facing, um, and it's getting worse every day, is a crowded legal market. And a number of them are turning to opening their own practices. Mm -hmm. So I think that they can get a lot of value um, out of what, A, what you've already said. Um, you've talked a lot about uh, opening your own practice, the reasons for doing it, um, some of the hardships. And uh, one of the things I see that they're not really thinking about is what you said. You got to be a bookkeeper. You got to learn to use QuickBooks. You have to be the marketer, your human resources. Um, you know, you got to purchase office supplies because no one else is going to do it. What I find where people make the most, the biggest mistake starting out is I don't have any money, so I'm going to try to do it cheap. And you, there's a difference between doing it cheap and doing it stupidly. <laughs> Sometimes you have to spend money on crit, mission critical items. And I would say the most, in my estimation, mission critical item is an accounting software. Yeah, QuickBooks, absolutely. Quicken. I would say one of those two, yeah. something that your accountant knows how to use. And, I, and that leads me to what I learned in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Even though you need to be conversant in all of these marketing, accounting, taxes, et cetera, et cetera, you're not an accountant. You're not a web developer. So you need to know where to go find those people and utilize their resources and pay them. Right. And pay them because a good accountant is worth every penny that they're going to save you when you try to do your own taxes and don't know all of the ins and outs and all the deductions and all the exemptions. So it's almost like being a penny wise and a pound foolish. Invest in your QuickBooks. I would say do your own daily book bookkeeping for a year so you understand how to bookkeep and you understand basic accounting principles. So when you have a conversation with your accountant, you're talking on their level. Sure. You don't need to know all the ins and outs, but you need to know the top sky, sky view, whatever bird's right. eye view, um, view of it all. And I would say the th same thing with your computer guys, your, you know, we, we had some issues with our computers and if I wasn't conversant in basic IT lingo, I really wouldn't understand what they were trying to tell me. I'm not installing the new router, but I need to know what a router is. <laughs> so those are the things that you have to work in your business and on your business. Perfect. All right, listeners, we're going to take a quick moment here to give a shout out to our affiliate partner on the show, and that is Udemy.com. Listeners, there are infinite paths to success. We talk about that every week, but they all start in one place, and that is with knowledge. And I'm not just talking about school. But the internet has brought a multitude of free and inexpensive resources right to your fingers. And one of my favorite resources is Udemy.com. You can learn virtually anything you want to when you want to. And the best part 
is that Udemy lets you learn right from the pros themselves. Udemy really has turned the doers into teachers and it has turned your laptops and your mobile devices into classrooms. And now, starting today through Tuesday, October 11th at 9 a.m., you can follow the link on the blog or the show notes to get any course on Udemy for just $15. But for this deal, act quickly. It will expire on Tuesday, October 11th. However, if you do miss the deal, do not fret. As an affiliate partner with Udemy, I will be bringing you discount deals on a regular basis. And if you pay attention, there is regularly deals that they offer as well. So check that out at udemy.com. That is U-D-E-M-Y.com. Now, listeners, that brings us to the point in the show that we call the Future Self Skinny Minute, where I will be asking Anne-Marie a series of semi-rapid-fire questions to give you the skinny on her. Are you ready for that? Sure. All right. Who is your favorite business person or entrepreneur? No one's going to know this person. <laughs> that's quite all right. It's, I think that's good. But his name is Mark Sumwalt. He is my current mentor. He is the person who I said, I want to be just like you when I grow up. And I'm trying to be just like him when I grow up. He owns his own successful law practice. He's at the pinnacle of his career. He's been the president of all of our organizations. But most importantly, he has a house in St. Martin, and he takes off one week a month to just relax. So I want to be him when I grow up. Shout out to Mark. (laughs) All right. Do you have a quote that has really resonated with you? Other than the quote that I gave at the beginning, I'd rather fail on my own terms than be complacent for the rest of my life. I always like to say making the wrong decision is better than making no decision. Absolutely. Move forward. Forward, Because failing forward is not failing because it's movement forward. Yeah, And from what I can, what I can tell, I mean, through this entire conversation, it sounds like uh, what you seem to summarize as one of your biggest personal failures has turned into your greatest success. Getting fired was what I thought was a personal failure, and it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. So use these things that we think are failures, grow from them, learn from them, move move forward. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. All right. What is your biggest professional disappointment? My biggest professional disappointment and I still have time to remedy this, (laughs) is that I haven't done a jury trial. I kind of feel like to be a legit lawyer, you have to do a jury trial. The type of law I practice is an administrative type of law. So I do trials, but they're before judges versus juries. So I would say that's my biggest disappointment, but hopefully I can remedy that disappointment. You have plenty of time. Okay, you can pick one person, living or dead, and you get an hour to pick their brain. Who is it? Bill Clinton. Okay. Master networker, smartest guy in the room, got himself into jams and out of jams. And I just think that he would be a fascinating person to speak with. Good answer. What did 10-year-old Anne-Marie think that she would be doing today? We heard about 17-year-old Anne-Marie. What did 10-year-old her think? I think I wanted to be an anthropologist or something. I was into dinosaurs at the time, which is kind of funny because I did not take any math or science courses after <laughs> after my first year of college. So 10-year-old Anne-Marie wanted to be doing something interesting. And at that time, I think I was interested in dinosaurs. Nice. And I think we already got your 
favorite book um, that everyone should read, and that was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Rich right? Dad, Poor Dad. Any person who is thinking about starting a business or just thinking about where you are in your career, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Rich Dad, Poor Dad tells you how to think about money as a tool and not something to be feared. Now, this question I like because music is one of my true passions in life. Do you have a record that you turn to when you just need to get shit done? Oh, that's so funny because I don't listen to a lot of music. Okay. Yeah, a record that I, when I need to get stuff done, I don't put on any sound. I work well in just pure silence. Okay. But when I need to relax, uh, you're going to laugh, but I'm a big Fanalo. I love some Barry right. Manilow. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll put on something. But one of the songs that I, I heard the other day on the radio was Frank Sinatra, My Way. That song has always been close to my heart. If you listen to those words, I think that's what we've been talking about this whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And not that my way is the best way or the right way, but it's my way Absolutely. for me. Absolutely. Love it. Well, Emery, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us. Where can the listeners find you? Well, they can find me on your website through your <laughs> blog. Uh, they can also find me at my website, which is really more of a legal website, but we're revamping it to talk more about um, things that are specific to running a, a small business at www.pantazislaw.com. And of course, uh, the chapter in the book that we put together Breaking the Glass Ceiling, uh, which will be available, I believe, through your uh, website. Absolutely. Now, Future Self listener, your time is your most valuable asset, so I sincerely want to thank you for spending some of that time with us today. And, And because I know how precious it is, I am never going to waste it. I am going to show up here every Friday ready to give you something valuable that you can use today. And this week, Anne-Marie has given me five copies of her Amazon bestseller, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Influential Women in Business. Now, to register for a chance to win this book, all you have to do is text the words future, the word future to 444-999. That is future, F-U-T-U-R-E, to 444-999. You're going to be signed up for the mailing list, and five listeners are going to get a copy of Anne-Marie's book shipped right to your doorstep. That is future to 444-999. Now, I said this earlier, listeners, but I hope you were paying attention because there really were some golden nuggets of wisdom in this episode. And if you take nothing else away, remember to set goals. You have to have goals. Those goals, they need to be specific and measurable. They need to have a time limit or they are never going to get done. You have to put your feet on the fire or you're never going to feel that sense of urgency. And then those goals are going to need your focused attention every day. Don't go wandering around hoping for the best. Set some goals. Future Self listeners, if you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with, then you got some remarkable value today from the time you spent with the wildly successful Anne-Marie Pantazis. Now, I encourage you to get out there and meet new people, form new relationships. If you want more than you have, you are going to have to do more than you've been doing. It is as simple as that. So until next Friday, listeners, get outside your comfort zone. Get out there and do something today that your future self is going to thank you for. 
You've been listening to the Future Self Podcast. If you're serious about planning for the future, then we have exactly what you need. Thanks for listening. Now, get out there and give your future self something to cheer about.